It's a blessing to be here. It's a great privilege to be able to uh, come once again and uh, to be at the conference. And uh, I do like to come and just listen, but uh, this time we've got to preach. But uh, it is a blessing, and I trust that uh, God will bless us. And we've already had a, a great message this morning and uh, had our eyes lifted up to the Lord. And I trust that the Lord will do that again uh, this morning. Uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3, if you will. And I'm going to be taking uh, all of my messages on this theme of our all-sufficient God from the book of Exodus. And I do have to turn this on. I think that's maybe why you didn't turn yourself on, sir. Maybe that's why you had the problem. <laughs> but hopefully that's on. It's on. Exodus chapter 3. Um, let's read the first 10 verses and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our study of his word. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, a, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the uh, Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank and pray, Lord, this morning for who you are. That Lord, as our great God, as the creator, as the sustainer, as the sovereign of this universe, Lord, you have deigned to make yourself known and uh, Lord, given us the privilege as your children to uh, know you and to walk in your ways. And even this morning, Lord God, we pray that you would reveal to, to us a fresh, Lord, uh, a fresh glimpse of yourself. Uh, Lord, uh, re remind us again of the truths that are, Lord, inherent in your name that, Lord, we might be able to glorify you, that we might live in the light of that, that knowledge, and that, Lord God, we might please you in all things that we do. 
And truly we pray this morning that you would be uh, lifted up on high, that you would be glorified and magnified, and that, Lord God, you might empower me as your servant to preach your word in ways that would be pleasing and acceptable to thee. And we commit this time to you now and pray for your uh, hand of blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, and as I said, this is the start of our theme, uh, looking at the theme of an all-sufficient God in the book uh, of Exodus. And this message is, is laying the foundation for all that we'll look at. And so it's probably going to be a bit longer than the rest of the messages. I'll give you fair warning about that so you can prepare yourself even now. But if you fall asleep, then um, we'll take notice and uh, we'll come up to you and I don't know, we'll get some deacons onto you or something like that. But most of us know the story of Moses up until this point, don't we? It's a fairly well-known story. For 40 years, or 40 years earlier, he had um, uh, come to identify with his own people uh, in bondage. And as a result of seeing their suffering, he sought to uh, start a revolution in order to bring about their uh, liberation, but he failed miserably. He had to flee for his life. And for 40 years, Moses learnt the qualities of spiritual leadership while tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro in the the deserts. So we may consider that a a waste of time, 40 40 years, uh, not in the service of the Lord, but really this was preparation time. And no time is wasted with the Lord. God is not in a hurry. Sometimes uh, he takes time with his servants, sometimes long times to prepare his servants. And after 40 years of character cultivation, of spiritual preparation and quiet meditation, at the age of 80 years, God appeared to Moses in the midst of that burning bush. Here in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, It states there that the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. Here is one of those rare theophanies in the Old Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Godhead. And from the midst of the burning bush, the Lord instructed Moses to remove his shoes from off his feet because he was standing on holy ground. In response to the self-revelation of God, Moses hides his face in verse 6 from, from, uh, in fear of, of God. And so with feet uncovered and face hidden before the holy, his holy God, Moses is now ready for his commission. And Moses is informed that God has seen the affliction of his people which are in Egypt. Their cry by reason of their taskmasters has come up before the Lord. And he knows their sorrows. This is not just a statement that God has become informed of their plight, as if he didn't know before. Rather, this is a statement that God cares. He says there in verse 7, I know their sorrows. And it is now time for him to act on their behalf. In verse 8, God told Moses that I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The term come down is an expression describing divine intervention. God is about to effect a divine rescue of his nation Israel. Moses had the privilege to play a central role in God's plan of deliverance. and In many ways Moses becomes a type 
of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as deliverer and intercessor. But how would Moses respond to such a privilege? How would he bow down, oh sorry, would he bow down in worship before the almighty God who has highly honored him? Would he respond in humble submission like Mary when her role in bearing the Savior was announced? No, Moses did none of these things. Instead, he protested before God. He remonstrated. John Davis puts his finger on, I think, Moses' thoughts uh, onto God's commission in his commentary. He says the implications of this responsibility were immediately clear to Moses. He knew well the power and the fury of the arrogant Pharaoh. Such a demand would indeed place him in a most precarious position. The confident, impulsive Moses of many years ago is now bowed in humility and in reticence before the challenge from God. Moses balked at this commission. Moses balked at God's command to be the instrument in his hand to deliver the nation of Israel. And what follows from these verses that we've just read are five excuses that Moses made for why he was not sufficient to the task that God had called him to. And we're only going to look at the first two excuses this morning made in chapter 3 because it's going to set the stage for the main point of the message. But the first objection is found in verse 11, where Moses basically asks, Who am I? Notice verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? So this was not a question concerning Moses' identity. It was a practical question that had to do with his capability. In essence, Moses was protesting that he was a nothing. He was a nobody, totally unqualified for this task that God was calling him to. And how many times have we made similar objections to God when he's called us to do something? I'm not qualified. I'm not gifted. I'm not a Spurgeon. I'm not a Moody. I'm not this or I'm not that. We've all said things like that. And Moses' fault is the same as ours when we make such excuses. At the root of Moses' objection was unbelief. One commentator states, self-distrust is good, but only if it leads to trust in God. Otherwise, it ends as spiritual paralysis, inability and unwillingness to take any course of action. Certainly it's good to have a self, as he says here, self-distrust, but not when God is saying that he's sufficient for the task, that he's the one who will do the work, that we're just an instrument in his hand. What was God's response to Moses' excuse? Well, it was a twofold promise, a promise of his presence and a promise of returning back to that same mountain where they would worship God. Look at verse 12. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And so the Lord is basically reassuring Moses of the eventual success of this mission. You will do this. I will be with you. And when you come out, you and the nation will worship me in this very mountain. But Moses' next excuse anticipates the inevitable question that the Hebrews will have when, they, when he presents himself to them. Surely they will ask something like this. Well, 
Who has authorized you to be our leader? Who is the God that has called you to lead us out of captivity? What is his name? This is exactly what Moses asks in verse 13. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And so Moses is putting forth another question here. Moses is saying, who are you? Who are you? And this is an important question that ultimately we all need to know. Because not only do our ministries depend upon our knowledge of God, but our very existence and eternal destiny hangs upon who God is. And if we don't know who God is, and therefore what he is like, then we are going to have difficult a difficult time in trusting in him. And so the question of God's identity is of utmost importance. And of course, Moses is not left hanging here because God immediately reveals his name and therefore his character to Moses. Look in verses 14 and 15. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. And notice here that one of the ways that God describes himself with is as or as i am i am that i am that's how he describes himself to moses now that doesn't really tell us very much Uh, it requires a little bit more effort on our part to understand what god means by this statement on his of his identity and so what does god mean what does god mean when he says i am that i am well let me first state that god is revealing his identity to Moses if you want someone uh, to know who you are you usually start by telling them your name and right here God discloses to Moses his personal name the name I am all other names ascribed to God in the Bible are, are really descriptions or titles of God take for instance the title of God Jehovah said can you from jeremiah 23 verse 6 where it's translated there the lord our righteousness this is a title which describes god as both being absolutely righteous and also the giver of righteousness but the name i am or more properly the name lord the capitalized word lord in verse 15 is the personal name of god God announces to Moses that this is my name forever. God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. Now in the Hebrew text, I am is a verb. Names names, uh, of people normally uh, are not verbs, of course we know that, but it's a verb which means to be or to become. The capitalized word Lord in verse 15 is related to the term I am. And I'll explain what I am means in a, in a short while, but it's important to know the name, that the name Lord 
when it's all in capitals in our Bibles, as it is here in verse 15, is a reference to the name of God. In the Hebrew text, God's name is represented by only four letters, or literally four consonants. The letters J, H, V, H, or as some put it, Y, H, W, H. And and oftentimes in the Hebrew, the the J can be pronounced like a Y, and the V could also be pronounced like a W. But these four consonants representing God's name are called by scholars the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton, or the four letters. So the, the reason that God's name originally only had four letters is that many, uh, for many hundreds of years, the Hebrew language was written without vowels. And so they would pronounce the words with vowel sounds... But the vowels were not written into the Bible until several hundreds of years after the time of Christ. And so the pronunciation of words would be passed on orally from generation to generation. And today no one really knows how God's name was to be pronounced. And the reason for that is that during the intertestamental period, during those 400 that they call the silent years between Malachi and Matthew, the Jewish people considered God's name to be too sacred to pronounce. And so that pronunciation was eventually lost or forgotten. The Jews of that period would not utter God's name lest they inadvertently take God's name in vain, they, lest they blaspheme God, as, of course, Exodus 20 verse 7 tells, tells them not to. So they were fearful of committing blasphemy. On top of that, they thought that Heretics or non-Jews might misuse God's name and thus bring God's ire upon themselves. So they stopped saying God's name and whenever they, uh, they came across his name in the scripture, in their scripture reading, they spoke the word Adonai, which means Lord. Lord in lowercase letters, we would probably put it that way, in the sense of being master. So they simply substituted Adonai for pronouncing that tetragrammaton, the J. H, V, H, those letters. So eventually the vowels of the word Adonai were incorporated into the consonants J, H, V, H, which gives us the familiar term that we know today as Jehovah. The reality is, as I said, no one really knows how to pronounce that name and that knowledge has been lost. The most accepted pronunciation is Yahweh or Yahweh, but really no one knows. So it could just as well be something like Jehovah. So when you read your Bible, you can know that God's personal name, Jehovah, is being used when the word Lord, in all capitals, is, uh, is there in the text, just as it is here in verse 15 when it says, the Lord God of your fathers. We know that that's God's personal name. According to the online Bible, God's name is translated as Lord in capitalized form, 6,510 6, times, while the word Jehovah is only used four times in our King James Version. So how does all of this connect back to God's description of himself as the great I am that I am? Well, as I said before, God's name is derived from a verb which can legitimately be uh, understood in a variety of ways. Of course, we would expect that from a God who is beyond human comprehension. But the root of the verb, uh, 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 that which is God's name, Jehovah, is to be. 
It occurs in the present tense, meaning that God exists in the present tense. He is active in our present lives. But God being who he is, it it is equally true that God's name can mean I am who I was, meaning that also God exists in the past tense. And the verb can also mean I will be who I will be, an indication that from our point of view, God equally exists in the future. And in one sense, this should not surprise us because in Revelation 11 verse 17, the 24 elders bow down and praise God saying, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. You are, in other words, you are the God who are and who was and, and who will be. And it is praise really here for the Lord's eternality, the eternal nature of God. And this attribute of God is evident in that term, I am that I am. But this reference to God existing in time is really only for our benefit. Because the reality is that God exists outside of time. Time is a created entity. Time is created. Time was created when God created the universe. Time is not eternal. So if if I can put it this way, there was a time when time did not exist. And that's an awkward way of putting it, but I think you catch my drift. God is outside of time and from our limited perspective, we see him as either existing in eternity past or in the present or in the future. But God is not bound by time. He existed before there ever was time. Now that's hard to get our minds around. We who are so time bound cannot comprehend eternity without time. But that's exactly what this term teaches us. The reference to God's existence uh, in time is really for our benefit because we cannot fathom what it is to exist outside of the realm of time. So I am that I am can be a reference to God existing in all three time tenses, in all three time references. But you know, there's another way to, ex- to understand the verb which stands behind God's name because it can equally be translated as he who causes to be. He who causes to be. A reference to the fact that God is the first cause the originator of everything, the creator who himself is uncreated. Now this may not seem like anything new to us, but in Moses' day, the world was full of gods who claimed to have creative power over various things. There were gods of the sea, gods of lightning, gods of harvest and and reproduction, gods of the hills and valleys and nations and so on and so on. But according to the ancient worldview, these gods were made by other gods and the people or, and even people or things sometimes became gods. But the revelation of God as uncreated creator was something completely different from all the other notions about the other gods. God's name Jehovah is an unmistakable claim that he alone is the source of all things. John 1.3, speaking about the eternal word or the eternal logos, states all things were made by him and without him not, was not anything made that was made. 
Hebrews 1.2 states that God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 also states, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. That's talking about the fact that he was there before even time began. And by him all things consist. By him all things are held together. So the entire material and immaterial universe was created by God through his eternal son. Now if all of this is true, if this is the meaning of God's personal name, then it teaches us some important truths about what God is like. In Bible times, names were important indicators to a person's character or their function, and this is no less true of the names of God. The name of God is an important key to understanding the doctrine of God. His name, Jehovah, the great I Am, is the revelation of the glorious attributes of God. These are truths that are ultimately the bedrock of our faith. Through Moses, God is giving us a glimpse of himself so that we, like Moses, might have a right view of God. A right view of God is essential if we are to serve him rightly. So what does this self-disclosure of God's name reveal to us about God? Well, we could say it reveals to us his eternality, that he is eternal. We've already mentioned that before. If he's eternal, if he's, if he's been there all the time, it means he's also immutable, he's unchangeable. He's unchanging and unchangeable. We could also say that, that from his name we, we can see the doctrine of impotence, his all-powerfulness, his sovereignty, his rule over all things. And we'll certainly see that here in Exodus as we continue. And it also speaks to us about his covenant faithfulness. See, the name Jehovah was a name that he gave to the nation of Israel to show that he had formed a covenant with them. And so these are some of the truths that come from this, but the primary truth that comes from the revelation of God's name concerns his self-existence and from that his self-sufficiency. So I want us to look at those two points. And all of that was just introduction. This is where the real part of the message comes. God's self-existence. You know, unbelieving science spends many millions of dollars each year on research trying to find the origins of life to the, in the universe, and the universe. Uh, they are on an incessant search for the starting point for, for all that we see. And of course, science sees the origin of everything in terms of evolution and the Big Bang. According to science, everything we see comes from nothing. Can you believe that? But thousands of years before evolution, God revealed to Moses that he was the cause of everything that we see and that we know about. According to the Bible, God is the creator of everything. But who created God? Children often ask that question. I remember as a child pondering that same question, who created God? Well, the answer of the Bible is no one. No one created God. God is uncreated and therefore he is self 
existent. The term self-existent means that God does not need anything outside of himself for existence. We all exist because someone has brought us into being. God exists because he always has. Everything owes its existence and being to God, but God is totally independent of everything. And we know that every cause must have an effect. Something cannot come from nothing. But when it comes to God, there is no cause. He is the first cause from which, from which everything else has originated. We mentioned that before in John 1.3. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Romans chapter 11, verses 34 to 36, it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given him, and it, shall, uh, be and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Everything we see and know about exists within some sort of environment, but not God. He is dependent on nothing other than what he has within himself. Frederick William Faber gives this eloquent vision of God's eternal self-existence. He writes, Father, the sweetest, dearest name that men or angels know, fountain of life that had no fount from which itself could flow. Thy vastness is not young or old. Thy life hath never grown. No time can measure out thy days. No space can make thy throne. And he's captured here that the truth that God has revealed in his name here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. God is the fountain of life, but he's, he had no fountain from which he flowed because he's always been there, he's self-existent. The vastness of his, his being is not young or old because God exists out of time. He's not bound by time at all and he can certainly never grow. He's immutable because of that, this, or the, uh, his, his self-existence. So the fact of God's self-existence, his independence from all things is, is established in God's word. Keep your finger here, but go with me to um, Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching there on, uh, on Mars Hill, Areopagus there, and uh, to the philosophers who are gathered there to hear something new or to say something new. And there in verse 23, Paul reveals to them the God who they were ignorantly worshipping. Verse 23, Acts 17, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, the, that a God that made the world, and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he need anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So here, we're here today because ultimately God has given us everything. All that we are, all that we have. It is because God has given it, given it to us. He's given it to us the very breath in our lungs. But he himself needs nothing. 
He doesn't need a temple in which to worship him. In fact, nothing can contain, nothing that we make, nothing that, this, that is in this universe can contain God. We've already seen that. Come with me also to Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12. Psalm 50. Psalm chapter 50. Verses 10, 11, and 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Everything exists because God exists, because he's the one who's created that. And apart from his creation, nothing could exist. God is the one who has brought all things together. And we know literally out of nothing, out of nothing. We call that ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is, has created everything that we see. And some who question whether God really is, though, totally independent of his creation. After all, they say, didn't he create man? Didn't God create mankind because he was lonely and needed fellowship with other persons? Well, if this were true, then it would mean that God was dependent upon his creation. And that would be a direct attack upon his self-existence. It would mean that God would need to create persons in order to be completely happy or completely fulfilled in his personal existence. And that is certainly not what the Bible teaches. In John 17 verse 5, Jesus prayed, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self and with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Jesus speaks of how he shared his, uh, 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 his glory with the Father before the creation of this world. In John 17, verse 24, he speaks to the Father of my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And notice that there was love, fellowship, and communion between the Father and the Son, and we could say also the Holy Spirit, before this universe was created. There was perfect contentment within the Trinity for all eternity. Now, the fact that God is three persons yet one means that there was no loneliness or lack of personal fellowship within the Godhead before creation. In fact, the love and interpersonal fellowship, the sharing of glory have always been and will always be far more perfect than any communion that we finite humans will ever have with God. So do you really think that God needed to create us to fulfill that, that need for fellowship? Of course not. Beloved, the communion that we could provide to God could no way compare with that communion between the Trinity. God does not need us. The giving of glory between the different persons of the Godheads far surpasses the glory that mortals could ever ascribe to God. Now, if God is totally content and he doesn't need us, then why did he create us? Well, we could probably, there's probably a, a number of things we could say in this point here, but we could say at least that God created us as an expression of his love, of his grace. 
one source, and I don't know where this came from. It's, uh, it came to me without any, any uh, you know, footnote, but it, one source states, particularly in relation to his people, the answer is this, though he doesn't need us, he loves us. And his purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in him, but that he might fill us up with himself. He made us empty to be filled with his fullness, thirsty to drink the water of life, weak to receive his strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by his wisdom. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience the finite measure of fullness of joy and blessing that he knows infinitely all to rebound to the praise and glory of his name, the giver and provider of all the good we enjoy, end quote. So why did God create us? He created us so that we might experience that which he is willing to give. The fact that the eternal and self-existent God has created us means that there is Therefore, it's significance to our lives. It means there is meaning to our existence. If evolution was true, then life truly is meaningless. If we are just but biological machines and we live and die and then there's nothing else, then we may as well live as we like. We may as well do a party and do drugs and use and abuse people. We may as well kill, maim and destroy because all of it is meaningless. But because we have a God who has created us, beloved, there is meaning to our life. There is meaning to our life in Him. Because an infinite, loving, self-existent God creates us means that there is significance to our existence. He created us to a purpose and ultimately that purpose is to glorify Him. So God's personal name, Jehovah or Yahweh, teaches us that He is self-existent. But there's some other logical con uh, conclusions that stem from this truth. And the next attribute of God that comes from the revelation of his name is that of self-sufficiency. God's self-sufficiency means that he is all-sufficient. That's the theme of our conference here. Self-sufficiency means that everything God needs is contained within himself. If he doesn't need anything yet can provide everything, then by matter of course it means that God is also sufficient for all of our needs. Every need you have can in one way or another be met by God. God is not limited in any way except by the constraints of his own character. The Bible tells us that he cannot lie. He cannot lie because he is all truth. And so the only thing that God cannot do is things that go against his character or his nature. And throughout the scriptures, time and again, God delights to reveal to us that he is all sufficient. Why? Because he delights to have his creatures trust in him. Now that doesn't mean that he needs it, but he does delight in it. By way of example, think about your own children. As adults, you don't really need their praise or affirmation you know, or their trust in order to be fulfilled or satisfied but nevertheless you delight it delight in it when your children uh, do rely upon you when they do seek for you when they do need you that is but a weak illustration of God's relationship with us 
And from cover to cover of the Bible, God is showing his creatures from one generation to the next that he does care for his creation, that he will provide for them out of his all-sufficient resources. God is self-existent and therefore self-sufficient. He can provide out of himself all our needs. Yeah, there are many passages that we could look at, but because we are limited in time, we have to be selective. And I thought one of the great passages that shows this matter of God's sufficiency, God's provision is Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. If you want to turn there, just the one verse there in Genesis 17. Here God appears to Abraham when he's 99 years old to reassure him of that promise that he'd made 24 years earlier. The promise that his descendants would be as as numerous as the sand in the sea. And notice Genesis 17 verse 1. When Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect now the problem was at this stage of course that not only was his wife barren but roman tell romans the book of romans also tells us that uh, that abram's body was as good as dead romans 4 19 neither of them were able to provide children humanly speaking it was utterly impossible and you know sometimes god waits until we are at uh, 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 are at the absolute end of our own sufficiency before he shows himself to be able on our behalf god has to break us from our own self-confidence and self-sufficiency so that we might turn to him and realize that he alone is sufficient and this is what he did for abraham god was going to show himself all sufficient and all powerful and fulfill the promise that he had made 24 years earlier And he did so by revealing himself to Abraham through a new name or a new title. God calls himself here the Almighty God. Or in the Hebrew, El Shaddai. The name El, of course, is a short form of the name of God, Elohim. It is the name that speaks of his power, his omnipotence, his might. But El here is conjoined with the word Shaddai. And Shaddai is made up of two words, Shad and the word dai and the word shad the hebrew word shad means breast and it pictures a nursing mother who takes her infant uh, to her breast and supplies for that child it signifies one who nourishes who supplies and satisfies and the hebrew word dai means sheds forth or pours out and is suggestive here of provision of sustenance and blessing so the name that god reveals himself to abraham with, with, with uh, means here that, that he is the all-powerful God, the one who is all-sufficient and all-bountiful. God had made a promise, and he would be the one who would fulfill that promise. And through his name, God was saying to Abraham that he was the one that supplies. He was the one who nourishes. He alone is the one who satisfies all our needs. And what was the response of God, the response that God wanted from Abraham? And what is the response that God wants from all of his children? Isn't it that we might trust him and obey him? 
Isn't that the response? Isn't that why God revealed himself to Abraham and, and why he reveals himself to us through his word and through messages like this so that we might trust him and that we might obey him? Why? Because he is self-sufficient. He is all-sufficient. The example of God's all-sufficiency abounds in Scripture. The, the verse, the, the, the theme verse of the conference is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all-sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And this verse is, is filled with all of those, the alls and everys, isn't it? But it's telling us here that God is able through his, his grace or his favor to make us all sufficient so that we can abound to every good work. We, we, we have in God everything we need to live and to serve God, live in this world and to serve God. It's all found in him. And that promise there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 comes in the context of our giving back a couple of verses before he gives the principle of the harvest there of sowing and reaping he says he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully and god is saying here that we shouldn't be fearful to give to the lord's work in fact he says that we're not to give grudgingly but to we're to give cheerfully because God is able to take care of all of your needs out of his all-sufficient supply. So don't be a miser when it comes to God's work, is ultimately what Paul is saying. What about problems and trials that peri periodically come our way? What does God have to say about them? Well, here we learn a truth about the all-sufficient God through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. My grace, he said there, this is God speaking to him, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness or in weakness. So in the midst of severe difficulties, human weaknesses, distresses of all sorts, God gives us this promise that my grace is sufficient for thee. The Apostle Paul was going through a difficult time. We know in the context it was the thorn in the flesh. But he was given the promise that God would supply sufficient grace for this trial. Sufficient grace is really all sufficient strength to bear up under the, the trial to, to the glory of God. But even sometimes sinners are prone to think that, our, that their sins are too great for God to deal with, that there are too many for God's forgiveness to cover. But even here, the Bible declares that God has an all-sufficient supply of grace to cover all and any sins. We're speaking about this very thing when we sing words like this, that there is a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. I be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And, and words, blessed be the fountain of blood to a world of sinners revealed. May I to that fountain be led, made to cleanse my sins here below. Wash me in the blood that he shed, and I shall be whiter than snow. Is God's grace sufficient for all the sins of the world, whatever they may be? The Bible says yes. Christ's blood shed on the cross is like an eternal fountain, flowing or continually springing forth with forgiveness and grace to all those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is sufficient for any sinner. There is no sin that God cannot cover. You know, the book, The Valley of Vision, is a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And one of those prayers speaks eloquently to the fact that God is self-sufficient. I want to quote several parts of that prayer. And we'll notice how it expresses that God is all-sufficient for every need, for every burden, for every sin, for every failure. He, the, the prayer starts this way. The, word, the world sorry, is before me this day. And I am weak and fearful, but I look to thee for strength. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my son to warm. Here it's speaking about God being sufficient for all of our needs. But what about our sins? Well, it continues, the prayer continues, I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. You know, I scarcely think that we could add anything to this list as it's here in this prayer. And what this prayer does is demonstrate that God is all-sufficient when it comes to dealing with all of our sins and failings. When it comes to our unworthiness, our transgression, our uncleanness, our guile, deceit, pride, enmity, treachery and so on, there is an answer for all of them. When it comes to our sins and moral failures, isn't it good that our God is an all-sufficient remedy for every failure? Romans 5.20 reminds us of the all-sufficiency of God's grace to cover every and any sin. Romans 5.20 states this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So God has given us the law ultimately to show our own sinfulness, to reveal to us how dirty and how ugly and how, how unclean we are before God. But it continues, But... Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know the word, the term here, much more abound, according to Ryrie, literally means to super, super abound. I love that, to super, super abound. His grace, if you can think of the worst sin, the greatest sin that, that could ever be committed, His grace, His sufficient favor, his sufficient forgiveness is able to super, super abound, to overflow even that sin. Beloved, do we believe that? Do, do we believe what we sing in our hymns? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair like sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Oh, there is an answer. There is a remedy for sin. 
and that is to flee to the cross of Christ. There in the cross of Christ, there is, there is forgiveness sufficient for every and all sin. And so what sins do you have? In what ways have you offended a holy God? Where can you go to find refuge? Well, there is only one place. There is only one place. You can go to the I am that I am, the great Jehovah God, the self-existent and self-sufficient one. And what a great and awesome God we have. That word awesome is so overused today, but surely if it applies anywhere, it applies to this, to the God who has revealed himself to us. And he promises to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west when you find your forgiveness through the finished work of his son. You know, in closing, one of the things that I mentioned at the start of the message was that God wanted to be known. He wanted his people to know him, so he revealed his name. God's revelation of his name to Moses teaches us that God is knowable. That God is knowable. The reason that God revealed his name is so that his people might know him by entering into a relationship with him. The name Jehovah is the name that has particular reference to his covenant relationship with Israel. What a blessing it is that the God who is self-existent and eternal, who needs nothing outside of himself and who is totally self-sufficient, would nevertheless seek a relationship with his creatures. Don't you marvel at that? If you don't marvel at that, then you need to go away and think of who you are in the light of the God who has created us and who has revealed himself to us. That God would condescend to reach down and give himself to sinners such as us is marvelous. It's wonderful and it's beyond our comprehension. Have you ever thought about that? Do you take uh, this profound truth for granted? He condescended to make himself known to Moses and through Moses to us. And so what will you do with this privilege? This is not just a theoretical exercise where we learn some truth, but this is, this is a practical exercise where we learn that, yes, this is our God, and from that we, we go and, and, and take the time to extend that relationship, to maintain that relationship, to build upon that. Will you seek him? Or are you content to make excuses like Moses? And go on your way and do your own thing. The great I am, Jehovah, the almighty God, El Shaddai, wants to have a, a, a relationship, wants to have fellowship with you and I. The door is open. God is willing if we will but take the time. Because God cannot be known apart from his word. Because that's where he really reveals himself to us in, his, in the full depth of his character. God wants us to know him as the self-existent and self-sufficient God so that we might trust him and that we might obey him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this truth that you revealed. Lord, how... Father, you are both knowable and you want to be known. You've made yourself known to us today. We thank you for each one, Lord, who knows you through, 
salvation through faith in your son. But Lord, we pray that, that we would not be content just to have a ticket to heaven, but Lord, that we would now live for thee, that we would spend our time, Father, in feasting upon your word and learning from thee in an experiential way. Lord, reveal to us your glory through your word during this time of this conference. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.